Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 11th, 2018, the very stable genius edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. Joining me from a studio in Manhattan, New York, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily Bazelon. Hello, hello. And also joining us today, well, will he or won't he? Is he here? Is he not here? Could it possibly be? Yes, it is. Our very own John Dickerson, no longer of CBS, has faced the nation, but the new host of CBS this morning. John Dickerson, welcome. You're still on the GabFest. I am still on the GabFest and will forevermore co-host of uh, CBS this morning. We don't want to leave out Gail and Nora. Good it's like point. our show. It's we like our show. Right, exactly. It's David is constantly trying to give <laughs> single members of a three-person team autonomy. Uh-huh. Normally it's just himself. Or though. top billing, as right. the case may be, the person who asks the questions. David, uh, was that's that true. in that's your true. head? You're right. <laughs> you're right. I, you're right. I noted in one of the in some of the press coverage of you, John, it said you were a frequent guest on the GabFest. Yes, that's, yes. that's <laughs> true. Well, it is frequent. I mean, it's quite frequent. It's, a weekly participant uh, yes, therein. The, and the sun is a frequent appearance in the sky. Just remember, we were the first trick in your life, John. I know. Well, you know, in trying to, we'll talk about the uh, about this change in my life later, but um, you know. When people have asked, well, you know, uh, how, why are you doing this? And how do you know uh, that you can do this? And I said, well, you know, I've been talking about issues with two other people for the last 12 years, and some of them political and uh, often some of them not political. So um, thanks for training me, guys. All right. That's, that's right. We're the training that's, wheels. That's good. <laughs> we'll if, take you, it. If, you, if you bomb, it's our fault. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we will, in fact, Slate Plus, Slate Lucky Slate Plus members, we're going to use our Slate Plus segment today to talk about John's new job and how he does it and what he actually will be doing. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member and get to hear that great extra segment. On this week's GabFest, can the president and Congress reach a deal on immigration and the budget and save the DACA program and build a wall and stop chain migration and end the visa lottery all before a January 19th? deadline for a government shutdown, then is President Trump mentally stable? And what is executive time? Then the Supreme Court takes on voting rights in Ohio and a North Carolina judge throws out a Republican-drawn redistricting plan for being too political. Emily will go deep on that. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. So, we're heading for a shutdown over government funding, over immigration, over the Dreamers. Absent a new budget deal, the government will go into partial shutdown after January 19th. I think, and John will clarify this in a minute, there's thought to be kind of general agreements on the outlines of what a budget deal could be, a deal that would probably raise both military spending and domestic spending. But the big obstacle seems to be immigration. On the left, Democrats, after punting on this issue before Christmas, 
are pretty insistent that they will not pass any deal without restored protections for the dreamers, those people who were brought to the United States as children who've lived here most of their lives, but are not technically legal residents of the country, but they were protected by President Obama back in 2012. Republicans, especially those on the right, are currently demanding that any protections for dreamers be coupled with a series of very conservative, very uh, extensive immigration reductions, including an end to the visa lottery, a an end to chain migration. We'll talk about what that is. Money for border security and for Trump's wall. And I feel like there's something else I'm missing there, too. Republicans need at least eight Democratic senators to vote in favor of whatever deal it is in order to, to uh, get it past the Senate. So, John, do you know anything about politics anymore or not? Have you just, like, <laughs> forgotten it all? <laughs> politics? Right. That's something you put on your uh, roast beef sandwich, right? Um can we, uh, well, we let's not leave, uh, I just, this extraordinary meeting that took place in the White House has to be a part of our conversation, but but just to, eight days from now, the government runs out of money. I they, I don't think they're that close. I mean, the reason they're, there are some potential areas of agreement on the, you know, hey, let's raise spending for defense and for other things, like getting people to agree to spend more money is probably the easiest of the things that they could agree on, although... It is true that Democrats wanted increased domestic spending in return for the increase in defense spending. Then the question is, are they going to get the defense spending they want? Because they've asked quite for quite a lot. But on this immigration thing, you had this meeting at the White House where uh, it was a bipartisan meeting. The president threw open the doors and let the cameras stay in there for nearly an hour. Um, and we should talk about the specifics of that. But coming out of the meeting, um, we talked to James Lankford, the Republican senator, who said, you know, there's, it looks like it's close on these things, but it's not close. President wants funding for the wall. Democrats said there will not be funding for the wall in order, you know, as an exchange for protecting the dreamers. So they seem as far apart as ever. Can we talk also about the difference between what Trump seemed to be led into by Senator Feinstein at that meeting and where it seems like he actually is? Because to me, this seems like a replay of the supposed deal that um, Pelosi and Schumer announced in the fall where it seemed like, oh, bipartisan moment. We're there. DACA. Yay. And then it all just sort of evaporates. I don't really see what like I don't see the point. Well, well, that's because. I mean, isn't that because there? we'll get to this when we talk about Trump and his mental stability, but like the idea that he is a negotiator or he has anything valid to say or anything he actually says is is policy is so ludicrous at this point. I mean, just just this morning, as you guys were pointing out to me, he he tweeted opposition to a bill that his administration is pushing. And then you know, the amendments an hour to later, FISA for surveillance. For the, an hour later, he, he, he uh, withdrew that. And with he doesn't understand this immigration issue. You, well, all three I of us, definitely understand it better than he does. Well, I, 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 this is—I think it's this not is that a, complicated, though. Well, like he knows what DACA is. He knows that he promised a wall, and then there are like some other things floating around, like um, family reunification and and the the lottery, right? Right. Let, we should. I mean, this is the right thing to focus in on. This was the signature promise of the Trump campaign at, at one level. I mean, obviously. It, to different constituencies, it was different things. But he said, because I'm such a skilled negotiator, I'm going to be able to come to Washington and achieve miracles that have yet to be achieved. And he talked about getting everybody in a room and then his talented negotiating uh, prowess would be able to break the Gordian knot. Do you break a Gordian? You cut the Gordian knot. I think you cut it. it. Do you cut the Gordian knot? And in that meeting, he, I mean, at one point, he said, "You know, I'll take the heat. I'll whatever. Bring me whatever deal you want. I'll take the heat." But the problem is, he won't agree to a deal 
that would cause him the heat because the heat that he's uh, that he's likely to really feel is the heat from his own side, which he's already feeling for even playing footsie with the idea of putting together a deal with Democrats, either on comprehensive immigration reform or even on DACA, which a, a portion of his base believes is a kind of amnesty. And so in that meeting, which was called, I think, some of the reporting suggests in response to our second topic, which are questions about his uh, acuity, there was no demonstration of this sing- signature talent. And and as you're all saying, there it wasn't um, there wasn't a moment where you would say, oh, right, that was an insight of his. It might have been a failed gambit, but he had this special insight about the, the course of this problem. It was actually kind of the opposite. Yeah, it was. And so I am willing to give him that he understands the basics. I just don't see when you are so inconsistent in your own positioning and you have these um, different bases that have really diametrically opposed goals here, right? I mean, the Democrats, I think, for their base have to seem like they are sticking up for the dreamers, but they are not building this damn wall. And the Republicans have pressure on the other side from immigration hawks. And I so I'm not sure how the flip-flopping like really gets anyone anywhere. But isn't there... Don't you think, Emily, you know, if you were if you were a, um, a, a negotiator who came from the Harvard uh, program on negotiation and you were plopped into this and you knew nothing about it, you'd say, OK, this is pretty easy. It's pretty easy. You get doc. Everyone pretty much want, almost everyone wants the DACA rights restored. So let's get those in there. And this wall is pretty important. It's not that big a deal. It's basically an extension of fencing that we already have. So give some of that and punt on these bigger issues, which there's definitely not going to be cooperation around, around chain migration or the lottery at this point. And so that's your compromise. Your compromise is Democrats, yeah, you're going to have to let him, let him say it's a wall. He's just going to build you know, a few billion dollars extra offense and you're going to get to keep DACA. Isn't that the deal? That seems like that's the deal. Just, just Let's just get to it. Right. Well, the Democrats don't want to bend on that wall part and the Republicans don't want to bend on the DACA part. Although the wall seems to be changing its definition, right? (laughs) I mean, once the wall turns into like a little fencing and maybe some of it's electronic and we can build it later, then who cares? The wall has a lot to do with semantics. Right. Although although it has already previously changed um, and come to that definition. And by the way, we are totally gone from the days of Mexico will pay for it. Right, I mean, White right. House officials are now saying, please don't bring that up anymore. This in our interview with the president at his uh, 100 day mark, I asked him, are you still going to get the Mexicans to pay for the wall? He's like, oh yeah, absolutely. They're going to pay for it. Um, so we're a long distance from that. You know, one way in which this meeting, which I don't think it achieved this goal, but you could imagine, here's a strategy you might imagine. I'm riffing here, but so you have a meeting, you make it seem like everybody's kind of on the same page, which the president did when Dianne Feinstein said, hey, why don't we just have a clean DACA bill? He, he said, said, that'd be yeah, a great sure, idea. Yeah, sure, let's do it. And then Kevin McCarthy, uh, uh, yeah, Kevin McCarthy jumped in and said, well, I want you to clarify, sir, that you don't mean this. And then he said, oh, I think that's what Dianne Feinstein meant, which was not, not at, all at all what, what she, she meant. meant, which but was then clear. You could imagine the theatrics I love of this. the mansplain. I love that Trump got mansplained. I know. By Kevin McCarthy, McCarthy that was really, great and that was an interesting, I would, surprising that McCarthy was the one to do the mansplaining, but you could imagine a situation in which you have this meeting, and let's say that exchange didn't happen to uncover the 
basic disagreement between the two sides there in real time. But you have the, the end meeting. And it looks like everybody's kind of getting to say their piece. And, and it comes to your point, David, which is like, oh, it looks like a deal is pretty easy. Then when either side tries to puncture the deal, you say, hey, wait a minute. We had this big bipartisan deal. Why are you spoiling this thing everybody wants? So it kind of it builds it before you actually build it. But that that didn't really happen in this case. Emily, there's the, the, these two big new ideas have really emerged. Well, one one is not that new, but the idea of ending the visa lottery, uh, which is the this program that allows people from historically under Im, underrepresented com- countries in American immigration to get people into the U.S. by essentially a process of luck, um, and then chain migration, which is the process that allows people who are here legally as green card holders and citizens to bring family members over more easily than they would otherwise. These Can I just say the chain migration is Trump's preferred term, but people who are immigration uh, advocates fa- talk about it as family yeah. reunification? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I Can I also pause and say chain migration, that's the only reason why my wife, who I would argue is a pretty productive citizen in this country. Nah, um, is she's, a, is, a know, she's a She's a, cha- she's a quote, chain migrant. It's an, it is an absolute outrage. It is an outrage that goes against everything that we as Americans should believe to want to get rid of, of chain migration or family reunification, whatever you want to call it. It's a fucking outrage. It is the most, as, a, as conservatives to support this, the family and the bonds that family create, that's how people integrate into societies. That's how people have stability and build build a life here. And to, to reject that and to deny people that hope and that opportunity is a fucking sin and an abomination and people should be ashamed. The visa lottery, I don't care so much about. I can – that seems like – I like it. It's fine. I can see why they're giving that up. But the, to to go after family unification is a is a – appalling so anyway, can i just um i'm end of my rant end of your rant so i i want to just ask a question about your rant canada does this differently right and uh, some other countries put more um stock in the skills of mm-hmm. aspiring immigrants than in their ties coming in and that leads to a more educated uh immigration population which is then one that is more immediately beneficial in terms of the finances of all of this, right? So when you look at immigrants in the long term, they always contribute. In the short term, the more education they have, the faster that happens. Given all of that, I mean, I completely understand why you're taking the stance that you do, but do you think there's any room here for negotiation or do you just feel like Democrats should reject I, this entirely? Well, I think there are a bunch of different things. First of all, I think if you think about the principles, the first principle should be people who already have a life in the United States, you should be cautious about disrupting and and destroying that life. That's why the ending of uh, temporary protected status for Salvadorans, yeah, Salvadorians horrible. is is horrible. That's why throwing out or, or denying protections to the dreamers is horrible. Because once people are here, you, you want to pre- prevent people from coming here illegally. That is a real goal. But once people are here, you, you shouldn't disrupt their life. That's a, that's very destructive. In terms of who you are letting into the country, I think it's absolutely fine for us to set standards where we are seeking people who have more education and more skills. But once you've let those people in, the idea that you would you would deny them the right to have their family with them seems to me perverse and stupid. But also, yes, I think as a, as a as a criteria for admission, yes, education and skills seems fine. That seems like go ahead, make raise those raise those standards. My understanding, though, about the difference between chain migration and family reunification is there is a different class of migration that is related not just to family relationships but social relationships, and so the migration happens because 
you you want people to move into into um, cities or towns in which they have people from their country and there's a connection because that has a social good too. But it's but it's not, I don't think it's always family reunification. I don't think they're synonymous. I think there's a there's a kind of chain migration that is social and not just fa- familial. Well, maybe as a as an idea, but legally speaking, the people who have an easier time getting in are the people who are relatives, right? I mean, so when we're talking about changing laws and policies, aren't we focusing on that? Well, I think it would affect that. My understanding, and I'm sorry to be operating out of ignorance, but is that there are two, there's family reunification and then there are immigration policies that encourage people to where the the connection is just social, but that if you're ending both, you're ending family. Hmm. I didn't know that the second had any kind of legal status. In any case, is this a deal? I mean, David, you are laying it out. It seems like it should be attainable. It has to happen quickly if it's going to be part of um, keeping the government open. But And then the other red herring we should throw in here is that this week, a federal judge in California um, issued a nationwide injunction against Trump's ending of DACA. So the idea here is that DACA created rights and that you can't just willy nilly take them away um, without going through the notice and comment period. That is a marks a rule change as opposed to like a more minor rule revision for a federal agency. And that just sort of scrambles the picture. We don't know whether that ruling will be upheld by the Ninth Circuit or ultimately by the Supreme Court. If it were, that would actually take the pressure off the lawmakers. But with that question mark, it seems like the Urgency, the sense of urgency in Congress um, has not lifted. John, last piece on this. You began this segment by saying it didn't feel to you like there was a, they were that close on a deal, both for immigration reasons and for budget reasons. So let's say we end up with a shutdown starting on January 19th, using your, uh, your, prof, your profit glasses, which you don't like to wear. <laughs> Do you have a sense about who is going to bear the the political responsibility for the shutdown? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, that's if they actually get to a shutdown and don't just to say, like, let's fund and give each other two more months to talk about this. I have no idea. No idea. I mean, because we've got a situation in which, by the normal calculus, much of what the president does would, quote unquote, hurt him. And it does, quote unquote, hurt him because his poll numbers are still, his approval ratings are in the, you know, High 30s at best. And um, yet Republicans are afraid to walk away from him. Right, because we're in a we're in an off-year election season um, in which he's very powerful with uh, his party's base, and that's going to matter to all Republicans running. And they don't want primary challenges. Right. And, in a, and, and so in a sense, they are, I'm just trying to th- think this through, so Republicans are, they're going to be on the hook for whatever the president, however he best defines this fight. Um, and watching it over the last few days has got to give them some uh, nervousness. This is a politically volatile moment. It might be a jump ball for who gets blamed, and the person who's advocating and setting the tone of things on your side is saying highly contradictory things. On some sense, Lindsey Graham argues, and I think there's some validity for this, that, that the president could have a Nixon to goes to China moment, which is to say the president embracing something that gets him what he wants but also gives the Democrats what they want. Can you have such a moment when you're depending on the people who care the most about that issue and f- would feel burned when you're depending on them to turn out in the midterm? And you, you could really assume that none of the people who will be like, oh, glad you did that, will actually then turn around and be your supporter. Yeah, like yeah, a yeah, very yeah. small number. Yeah, moment, the most yeah. important point. So you're saying a, the Nixon goes to China in this case would be do a DACA deal, maybe with some 
some wall attached and a, and a budget compromise. Yeah, I mean, you could do a DACA deal or remember the, before the president gave the joint address to Congress, he had some reporters over the White House and floated the idea that he was like, he was fine with comprehensive immigration reform. And then he at one of these meetings told Lamar Alexander, I think it was Lamar Alexander, he said, you know, that deal you put together in the Senate where you got, uh, you know, a, a majority of vote, much more than a majority of votes, that'd be fine. And then his side said, oh, my God, no way. That's not it. And then he walked it back. Um, so he's done this uh, done this before. So I guess Nixon goes to China means two things, a DACA deal and then also some kind of comprehensive. This would come down the road, but some kind of comprehensive reform that de- Democrats could vote for. Anything Democrats are voting for is not going to be liked by the president's base. And they won't be convinced by the president that they should like it. And he won't try to convince them because it seems the pattern here is even though he says he wants such a thing, once it gets defined by his base as amnesty, he says, oh, well, no, I wouldn't do that. Well, what he wouldn't do is the thing he said he would do, which is a bipartisan deal with Democrats. This episode of The Gap Fest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frames that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Michael Wolff's book, Fire and Fury, continues to roil the White House in Washington this week. In particular, it has roiled the president. He is clearly agitated by the implication in the book that White House staff, among other people, don't think he is mentally agile or stable and mentally agile enough and stable enough perhaps to be president. He tweeted earlier this week, furiously rebutting the idea that he is not with it, memorably calling himself a very stable genius. Later came a story in Axios claiming that the president barely works and that his staff has cordoned off enormous amounts of time on his schedule for what they euphemize as executive time, which is the time that he gets to spend the time that he chooses to spend watching TV and tweeting. We also have, as a sideshow to this, a debate um, in the medical community about whether it is appropriate to diagnose, to discuss the president's mental health and or or, uh, brain fitness. And there's a debate over what's called the Goldwater Rule, which is the rule adopted by the American Psychiatric Association, which which forbids uh, psychiatrists from diagnosing people they haven't. Uh, actually have a chance to diagnose and evaluate in person. So is it, Emily, useful to spend time worrying about the A, the president's mental health, B, his mental acuity, the question of whether, so there's, there's I think, the question of is he mentally ill in the sense that he has some 
a, a strong enough form of narcissistic personality disorder that it should be clinical, clinically labeled as a disease. B, whether he is mentally acute and whether his acuity has declined because of some form of dementia, uh, which is a, a totally separate claim that people are making. Is, there, is either of those conversations a useful conversation? Well, I remain really uncomfortable with psychiatrists and psychologists breaking the Goldwater rule. I think it's there for good reason. I understand that when you see someone in public so much, it becomes increasingly tempting to think that like a full comprehensive psych evaluation wouldn't tell you very much that you don't already know. But I just still think that like this is a road they should not be going down. And I I'm generally sensitive to instances in which the all the norm shredding of President Trump then gets other people to violate their professional norms. And I feel like this is a good example of that. Should we care that Trump seems totally erratic and impulsive and narcissistic? Yeah, of course. It's like causing all kinds of problems for the country and around the world. But is this conversation about clinically diagnosing him useful? I don't think so, because I don't think that we have... A, a different remedy for it realistically than the election in 2018 and in 2020, which seems like that's how our system deals with this. And so I feel like we're also constantly raising the bar for what we think should have to happen in order to have some kind of real way of addressing this. And then that in turn, like lowers the bar for what Trump's conduct has to be. So even though the televised meeting we were just talking about didn't yield any great deal making or any like real insight into the process, the fact that he was like answering questions and seemed reasonably just in a basic way on top of things was like surprising and exciting. And that's just not like, that's not good. We shouldn't be in that place. I don't think. As somebody who has a, uh, I think a public persona, which is not exactly the same as my private persona. It's not that uh, different, David. Well, you never know. In print, <laughs> you never know. In private, he may be, you know, dr- dressing up in a Daffy Duck costume. I guess if you mean really, really private, it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> All Go right. Ahead. Okay. Okay. Continue All on. Right. Not even going to finish the sentence. The show took not a turn. Even, not even going to finish the sentence. Okay. Um, John, so there's another piece of this, <laughs> yeah. which is this, this worry about uh, how much time President Trump spends doing his well, job. Does that feel to you like a legit worry? I don't, well, it's a good question. I should know before I opine about anything anymore on this topic that I grossly misstated the origin of the 25th Amendment last week, which is that it happened. Oh, after no, the, I've repeated that to like 10 oh, people. Well, I, so the 25th <laughs> Amendment came after the assassination of John Kennedy when they realized that yet again, there was no proper succession plan. But and, they were worried about the Woodrow Wilson. Oh, they were totally worried. And that was certainly as a part of the conversation. And the antecedent was important and and I'm actually sorry, a bigger problem. That. That well, bad. no, I should have known it too, but I spent so much time on the uh, on the Wilson League of Nations uh, whistle stop that I just like spliced time. Anyway. You seemed so certain. I, I know. Did think, well, this on, is... 25, that's really a lot more well, than 19, but okay, maybe. Yeah. No, I know. It's that, that incredible certainty and being totally wrong that opens up like a howling void in um, people's trust of me. But hopefully that breach in trust will not um, ruin people's lives. Um, uh, and more importantly, um, will uh, not cause them to shut off their ears to what I'm saying. Um, so on this question of executive time, it's a f- uh, an old boss of mine, Jim Kelly, had this theory that basically presidents weren't that busy um, because they have hundreds of people working for them and doing things and the federal government works at a slow pace. 
So I think there are a couple of things. One, presidents have extraordinary power, and those that extraordinary power can be required uh, in super short bursts of time. And reaction to uh, big, huge, extraordinary events can be called on in a flash. And so you need um, presidents to have that ability to deal with a crisis in a long and calm and extended uh, way. You could argue, okay, well, they don't need that much time day to day, but when they need it, whew, do they need it? And then day to day, I think there are two, there are a number of things where a president's time does matter. One, post 9 11, there are more threats. It is a way, it's a, and I know David has a, a good and um, powerful argument for a kind of lowering the national security theater and accepting a new reality because when you try to squeeze out every possible pipe bomber, you end up crushing liberties in America and American life and making everybody all freaked out and that you basically need to accept this is a new part of American life and not try to stop every single thing. Having said that, the way the administrations work now, you you can't have a Benghazi happen on your watch. Um, You can't have something happen because you will be seen to have been asleep at the switch. And that's now true of a variety of presidential things. One thing that's interesting is that, remember when President Obama was blamed for the Katrina, for the oil spill, and it was called Obama's Katrina. It's an oil spill that he did not create and couldn't have anticipated. But it was seen as a validation of the fact that he lacked the executive experience necessary to do the job. By the same token, what's happened in Puerto Rico, um, the president has argued, well, I didn't cause this problem, and it's all these existing problems that Puerto Rico had. And he seems to have, because there was a lot else going on in his presidency, in part because he manufactures these days daily excitements. And because they're not covering it on Fox and Friends. And because they're Continue. not covering it, he is not getting graded for the Puerto Rico cleanup effort in the same kind of way that President Obama was graded for not being able to solve the BP oil spill. My point here is that the presidency takes on um, things that are mandatory. Um, In other words, disaster relief, disaster response, all that stuff is an addition to the presidency that makes the days longer, makes the president have to do more things. But this president is choosing not to do a lot of things. He's choosing not to kind of speak about all the national disasters. Um, he's choosing not to do engage in the unifying events that previous presidents have. Um, and so it's a question of basically every president makes their own time. And if they can get away with it, then they've set a new norm. And then the question is whether presidents afterwards will will have to. I, I think it's interesting that um, if, you, if you look back, I just read this this Grant biography, which I talked about incessantly over the last few months. But one of the things you realize about Grant is that when he was president, he didn't really do very much that that was, he, he believed the president shouldn't do very much. And as a, as president, he, you know, he worked, he showed up at his job, but it wasn't, it wasn't a very active presidency because of how he thought the presidency should be conducted. And so I have no, I have no problem with, with president Trump uh, not working very hard. He's, he's an old man. He shouldn't, he shouldn't have to spend uh, 16 hours a day. It's probably his decision-making uh, would deteriorate the longer if he have to have 16-hour days. The thing that I hate about it is not the the fact that he has executive time. It's that he's created this system of courtiers. He's created this this system where rather than not doing his job but allowing the job to be done, he's instead ginned up all this other mishigas, all this other personal drama um, he stupid, you know, stupid, he wastes people's time with saying stupid stuff. He sends his people out to defend him. There's this whole, uh, 
kind of uh, hysteria, which is much more like an imperial court than it is like a properly functioning uh, democracy. So that's what I object to. It's not that him not working. It's that him causing this all this other storm of drama to happen. And that's that's a waste. Well, you can also tie that to the mental um, fitness question in the sense that he seems in the end to be the most addicted to attention, whether it's positive or negative. And so the tweeting, which is destructive um, on many levels for policy, for the country, for his own popularity ratings, continues because when he's out of the news, it looks like he just can't stand it. And, And also he just wants to sound off. It's like... Right. I mean, it really does still feel like the grumpy old uncle in the basement or the attic. And also, as Paul Light, the uh, political scientist, has pointed out, a lot of where presidencies fail is the pre-planning that could be done if a president is really and his administration is on their toes so that future disasters are avoided. If you decide that the policies you want to promote through your agencies are basically just ripping the guts out of it, you know, because that's the way you view government should work, then that's, you can get a lot done without having to think through, okay, is this, you know, have all the scientists agreed that this is a good policy or, um, you know, you don't, you don't have to sweat it. Now, of course, the huge downside is that when you, uh, when you rip out the the bloatware, you end up, um, (laughs) you, you end up, uh, you know, um, endangering vital subroutines. So Emily, one, um, piece that got people talking and, and connects to all of what we've been discussing in this segment is David Brooks's column a, about the Trump administration, about the idea that Trumpists, anti-Trumpists have been driven mad and are behaving, in fact, in the same obsessive, maniacal uh, way that the tr- pro-Trump people are. Um, and then, in fact, we ha- what we have is two White Houses, one which is which we should kind of ignore, which is this president who is erratic, narcissistic, attention-seeking, um, but kind of feckless and doesn't really matter. And the other is a fairly effective, very conservative political operation, and that, and that that's doing an okay job, and and that's that's what matters. Is that um, and and that that's really a more or less routine conservative uh, administration is happening for most of what matters. That's what's what's happening. Do you, did you buy that? Uh, argument of Brooks's? Not so much. I mean, I think the separating is wishful thinking. I do think it's really important to pay attention to the serious deregulation efforts, uh, not just efforts, but like real policy moves being made, you know, at the EPA, at the Department of Justice, at the Department of Homeland Security, at the Secretary of the Interior. Um, there, There's real like marching going on and we should think about that more than we do um, because the tweets are super distracting. But the idea that the presidency is not defined by the public behavior of the president seems like yeah, just wrong to me. If you are a conservative, this was a pretty good year in 2017, um, despite the fact that if you talk to senior Republicans in the House and the Senate, they will say that the president's antics made it that much more difficult. Antics is the word somebody used to me last night who's in an elected position in the Congress, a Republican. And so, you know, on the one hand, it keeps everybody distracted. And so all of this other work um, can get done. On the other hand, when you talk to them in Congress, the way they see it is we could have gotten a lot more done if we weren't always having to manage these um, improvisations by the president. I would add, and this is not my insight, I can't remember who I'm stealing it from, that I actually think there's a third force, or this person who I'm stealing it from, points out that there's a third force, that the problem is not 
necessarily Trump, but there is a Trumpism. So it's not as though what's happening is there's a basically a chamber of commerce, Main Street Republican agenda that's being carried out by the administration and by uh, by a conservative but but well intentioned uh, and well run Congress. It's that there is Trump acting crazy. There's a, a Congress that's doing some of its business, and then there's the 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 nationalistic, racist, kind of anti-immigrant, atavistic policies that Trump has fanned and has has ginned up heat and he's ginned up real energy and rage within a huge percentage of the Republican base. And so that there's a nastiness and a and a and a poisonousness within Republican mainstream Republican politics, which wasn't really there or wasn't fanned uh, or wasn't wasn't really there a decade ago. And that Trump is totally responsible for making that worse. And that's that's almost a separate point from his personal uh, misbehavior. And that we should worry about that, that, that Trumpism, uh, the way that Trumpism has poisoned mainstream Republican politics. And it does seem uh, as, like sometimes conservatives are trying to whitewash that part of it and imagine that it's just like, uh, you know, like a piece of tape they can peel off. And it's not. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right. Voting rights, gerrymandering, the voter rolls. These are hot issues this week. The you sound like finished. you're trying to convince yourself of that, and you are really not <laughs> persuaded. That was really quite an intro. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> like, all right, you do, you do it, Emily. She made okay, me talk you about can have it. This. Okay. She made me talk about Husted versus A. Philip Randolph It's Institute. Houston. Start. Let's start yeah, there. Don't get Houston on your own petard. Uh, um, okay. Um, the Supreme Court. The Supreme I don't like having you two together. It's, like, uh, it's not oh, fair to now me. Now it's come out. We invited you any that, week. It's come out. He's so feeling much left out. out. Go ahead. The Go Supreme ahead, Court heard oral argument this week in a really important case about the procedures. Really state, important. It is really important. It's about the it procedures <laughs> that states can use to clean up slash purge their voter rolls. And I know this sounds boring, but it's important because we talk a lot about voter ID and the restrictions that imposes and how that can um, suppress turnout and suppress the vote. Registration actually matters more, according to studies. If you make it hard for people to register, you push them away from the polls. And so the question in this case, it's like a very narrow question of statutory interpretation. There is no big constitutional principle at stake here. We have the National Voter Registration Act, which was passed in 1993, signed by Bill Clinton with great fanfare. And the idea of this law was mostly to increase access to the vote. States were instructed to put voter registration materials at the DMV and other social service providers. And the idea was to increase registration. And indeed, that happened. Even though we despair of low turnout rates, it is true that many more Americans are registered to vote than were before this law, which we usually call the motor voter law, passed. It had a provision in it, however, that also tells states to take reasonable efforts to keep their voting rolls up to date. 
Ohio has a process in which if you don't vote once in a federal election cycle, the state sends you a piece of mail. And then if you don't return that piece of mail and you don't vote a few more times, they kick you off the rolls. Right. And the question is whether Ohio is allowed to do that in given the fact that the motor voter law says that a failure to vote is not supposed to be the reason for getting purged from the rolls. So Ohio's position in this case is, okay, it's true. The process starts with not voting, but then it has to do with you're not returning this piece of mail that we sent you. And so it's not merely the failure to vote that um, triggers your removal from the voter rolls. There were certainly conservative justices who liked that argument this week. Justice Alito seemed super into it. Um, Justice Roberts seemed sympathetic to it as well, and possibly Kennedy. The other side is saying, wait a second, if it's the the failure to vote that starts everything, and then all you have to do is like miss a piece of mail, that's not enough. And so one of the most interesting uh, moments at the oral argument was Paul Smith, who's the lawyer for the voters who are challenging Ohio statute, he was asked, I think by Justice Breyer, well, what if um, the state has to show that they have to send a registered piece of mail and they have to show that they tried a few times and that um, it gets returned, like that, you're, that you don't live there anymore? Would that be OK? And, and Paul Smith said yes, that that kind of process, which would seem to be far more certain about the idea that you have moved away from your former address, that that, that would be solid enough. And that's sort of an interesting compromise, I think, because, look, nobody thinks that it's good to have people on the rolls who don't live in the state anymore, who have died. Like, that's not something that should be encouraged. It's just a question of the sort of how certain do we have to be that someone's moved away? Because when you eliminate people from the voting rolls who still live there, there is no question that you make it harder for them to vote. Ohio had at least 7,500 people cast these conditional ballots in 2016 because they weren't on the rolls anymore. And it's likely that there were many thousands more people who didn't get to vote at all or didn't show up. If Ohio is allowed to keep its relatively restrictive kick people off the rolls process, one would expect other states um, with Republicans in control, especially swing states, to adopt similar rules. Emily, what is the evidence or what are, what is the what are the indications that this is uh, racist or that it has a racially disparate impact? And does that matter in the Supreme Court case? Well, we know that when you make it harder to vote, the people who are the most affected are people with low income, elderly people, minorities. In particular with um, this question of like sending mail, the state is mostly sending those mailers in English or, or maybe even entirely. And so people who don't speak English are at a disadvantage. And we've had previous rounds of this in. Um, so, for example, in Florida, they tried to use the same provision of the motor voter law to clean up the rolls in a way that um eliminated or threatened to eliminate thousands of people with Latino surnames. And the idea was that like that came from some kind of citizenship check. But it turned out that there were all kinds of false positives targeted, you know, because their names looked Hispanic. And so when you see things like that, it just starts to feel like, yes, this has a really racist overlay and impact. And, you know, what's really at stake here? And so with Kennedy and Alito and Roberts, I mean, if Kennedy is sympathetic to this, then yes, uh, 
tea is over. Let's let's go to the table, right? Right. It was a little. I mean, you know, Kennedy sometimes he, it, in oral argument, it did seem like he was probably going to vote with the conservatives. And then you're right. I mean, what I find sort of dismaying about this from a like Supreme Court methodology point of view is like this is a statute with words in it, and they just have to interpret the words, and it really shouldn't matter what your politics are for whether you know, like what I just described is super technical, and so the notion that like it's going to be a 5-4 split this case just is bothersome to me. What about this North Carolina map that was thrown out this week and uh, are people in North Carolina even going to be able to vote for Congress this year? Uh, yes. I mean, there will be some kind of map. Um, but that was such an interesting ruling. So there's a three-judge panel in these cases. It's this weird process in the federal courts where instead of having like the normal one-judge appellate ruling and then Supreme Court. We just have a three-judge panel and it goes right to the Supreme Court. And those judges, it was like three to zero on the basics and then two to one on some of the specifics. Um, There was like a partial dissent. But they just said they ripped into the partisan gerrymandering that went into producing North Carolina's maps. And what's so interesting is that that partisan record is totally clear. One of the Republican legislators in North Carolina said that they created a map with 10 Republican seats and three Democrats because they couldn't figure out how to do 11 to 2. And otherwise, they were In other words, they were deliberately maximizing partisan advantage and they thought that was perfectly legal because the Supreme Court has never said that you cannot use um, partisan considerations to draw a map. But we're having this moment of reconsideration. There are now two cases in front of the Supreme Court from Wisconsin and Maryland that challenge partisan gerrymandering. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court, based on the Pennsylvania Constitution, has a different challenge going on. And I think because the tools of gerrymandering have become so sophisticated, courts, it looks like, are increasingly nervous about this. And it's going to be really interesting to see if we, if the Supreme Court creates a new, essentially, remedy for um, for redistricting on a partisan basis. Can I ask you, uh, I thought there was the split when talking about gerrymandering in the courts where the courts at some level had said, you can use uh, gerrymandering to your partisan advantage. And then that's okay. That's what elections allow. And that's, the you know, to the winner go to the spoils. But what was bad was either A, an advantage that was just overwhelming and the other party could never correct, or then B, when race was affirmatively a part of your effort to shut some people out. In other words, it wasn't just to have more D's and R's, I mean, or more R's than D's, but to have, you know, more white people in one place and more in the other. So the second thing you just said was absolutely right. There is a whole body of law about racial gerrymandering and when it goes too far and, you know, the tension between the 14th Amendment, which says you can't take race into consideration and the provision in the Voting Rights Act that says we have to make sure not to um, diminish the power of minority voters. So lots of cases about that. But partisan gerrymandering, the Supreme Court has essentially said, like, maybe it's bad. The states can do something about themselves. They can create bipartisan or nonpartisan commissions if they want. Courts should not get involved in this. However, the last time the Supreme Court said that, it was basically a four- justice majority in which Kennedy 
joined for the purposes of that particular decision, but held out the possibility that in some future world, if the um, challengers could figure out a like good formula, a good conceptual, really mathematical way of addressing extreme gerrymandering, that he'd be open to that. And so then there's been a lot of social science since then. And those that's the case that is before the, the two cases before the Supreme Court. And this North Carolina case is now sort of out there on its own island by itself, right. indicating judicial distress about partisan gerrymandering, but its fate will ultimately also be decided by the Supreme Court. Right, right, okay. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're John Dickerson. You're kicking off at the end of a long work day at 10 a.m. What are you going to have as your 10 a.m. drink, first of all, John? I mean, and then co- what's your chatter? Coffee uh, delivered intravenously. My chatter is just uh, the president this week was asked about testifying with special counsel Robert Mueller. And on Wednesday, he said many, many, many times in the space of 30 seconds that no one had found collusion. Of course, that's not true. Uh, in fact, they have found collusion at a certain level. They haven't found it at the level that it's been hyped at. Certainly meetings between the president's son and somebody advertised as a Russian coming from the Russian government who had dirt on Hillary Clinton is an act of collusion. If it's not full collusion, it's at least collusion curious. Um, so, but leaving that aside, the president said, well, since there's no collusion, there's no real point for me to talk to Mueller. Obviously, he doesn't get to set the terms of what uh, the investigator wants to know from him. Based, you know, that's not the way it works. But secondarily, in some of the stories about this, they said, well, this deck directly contradicts something the president said when he, when he said back in June that he would be happy to talk to Mueller. What needs to go a little bit further in that explanation is it's not just that he said he would be happy to talk to Mueller. He said 100% he would be happy to talk to Mueller about obstruction of justice. It was not about collusion. The president was asked, look, Comey said the things he said under oath. You don't, you say that he's lying. So would you be willing to speak under oath to give your version of those events, that those events in the case of that question is the the meeting with Comey that led to the obstruction of justice claim? And the president said, 100%. So then his lawyer, Jay Seculo, came on Face the Nation, and I said, the president said he would speak under oath about all of this. That, I assume, is still true. The president's lawyer said, yes, the president was very clear about that. He said that if he was asked to do it, he would. This is not about collusion, and it's pretty straightforward. Anyway, I felt like that's been a little missed in the in the coverage. Yeah, I'm glad that you pointed that out. I hadn't quite picked that up myself. La Baz, what's your chatter? So I read something this morning that changed my mind. It's called I Started the Media Men List. It's by Moira Donegan. I hope I'm saying her name correctly. And it's an explanation of why Moira Donegan created the Google spreadsheet that went kind of whipped around um, media circles and then on Reddit called the Shitty Media Men that had this anonymous list of accusations against, I think, in the end, about 70 men in media. There was a real range of 
the kinds of allegations that were made. So when I originally heard about this list, it made me nervous because of the anonymous nature of the accusations. That's the kind of forum that can lead to the spreading of false false accusations. But I was really struck by how thoughtful just like a good explanation Donegan gave of why she set up this list and what, why in the context of powerful figures in media and women trying to warn each other and protect each other, why she felt like this list was necessary and why it could do more good than harm. Anyway, it's a post in The Cut on New York Net Magazine's web, and I recommend reading this essay. It just made me think anew. My chatter, I spent much of this week bathing in pickling myself in old-timey media. And I have two very strong recommendations for you. Uh, first of all, The Post, the movie about the Washington Post involvement. Wait, I believe John Dickerson papers. recommended that weeks Did ago. He? Do you listen to our Did? show? No. Why would I listen? <laughs> Why would I listen to John? <laughs> but John's you were chatter? there. We talked about it. Can I just say really? that? Do you Did listen he? to your sh- our show while it's happening? <laughs> I haven't seen it. I hadn't seen the grief. movie at that point. Well, of course oh not, because John saw like an early release of it or something. I'm not even. Oh, I think it's finally in New Haven. A few weeks ago, it wasn't. The uh, I just for, for those who can see what's happening in the video screen where we have David down in Washington, it has changed into some some sort of thing has happened where it now looks like a piece of modern art. We can just see his hands, and it's kind of the color has gone funny. Um, My hands frozen in ghastly shape. It, it's yes. cool, actually. It's totally Photoshop looking. Yeah, now. Uh, maybe I'll take a picture of it and we'll post it on the whatever. Um, but anyway, David, go ahead with um, go uh, ahead with your it. old yeah. stale you movie it. recommendations. Yeah, forget it. You got what any? else do you have? Man, this is terrible. <laughs> We thought that John going to this morning was going to cause him to leave the show. It's going to cause me to leave the show. No, you're just going to <laughs> you come hang out with just us Just be in New York and ganging up on me. Okay. Okay. I see how it is. Emily, I have so much sympathy for you after all these years. <laughs> me, me and John bullying you from Washington. That's right. right. Okay. okay did it. you have right. some other I had a second. I had a second. I had a second, a second recommendation, which was... The Tina Brown memoir, The Vanity Fair Diaries, which is her memoir of her years editing Vanity Fair in the uh, in the 1980s and early 1990s, it ostensibly these are her contemporaneous diaries, what she actually wrote at the time. I cannot believe she didn't massage them significantly. They're too on the nose. There's too many times when she you know, correctly call something that would then happen 10 years later or has a, or has a perspicacious thing to say about someone who would become much more famous uh, many, many years later. But it doesn't really matter. She's an incredibly funny, vicious, uh, lively, sparkling writer. And the book just throbs with energy. If you ever want to read a book about someone who is ambitious and talented and is not ashamed of it and is going after it, and a woman who's doing it, so it's even you know, doubly hard in in a world where that is, you know, that was punished and criticized. Uh, it's a great book. It's a fantastic read. She's just a, she's a terribly intimidating and, and vicious and cutthroat and, but brilliant and fun and lively. It's, it's great. And it, it really gives you a, a, a sense of the, the ambition and the, the, the desire that animated her. And it's, it's fun. Uh, also, there's so much about rich people and how awful they were, and and she admires them mostly. But the awfulness of rich people is a great theme. Uh, so I really, really recommend the Tina Brown book. 
Awesome. That that oh, did you recommend it a few weeks ago, Emily? Is that what you were going to say? I was giving you little props at the end for all your suffering. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. That is our show for today. The Political Gathers is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. They are here with me. John and Emily are not. You should follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash gabfest and answer john's question what was the question you posed earlier if your president a president concentrated on three or four things and they were three or four things you liked and he let everything else or she fall by the wayside how would you feel about that that's exactly right and then the corollary to that is given the um current situation and what the president's doing like enumerate the ways in which you think it's a problem that he's not engaging in parts of the office and what parts you would identify yes so so give your thoughts to us at facebook.com slash Gabfest. Izzy will take a look. Maybe we'll follow up and, and talk about some of those in a later episode or we'll respond on Facebook. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz, thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>